Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. you've got written down as we go through 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians and we get to the bit of it that your questions are about if we don't answer them interrupt put your hand up ask your question at that moment and we'll make sure we do try to cover everything if they're more general ones wait till we get to the end see if they get covered at some point and if they don't then ask them and we'll try and get them covered okay so oh hey Mikhail I've got you your printouts that you asked for. Um, with any bit of the Bible that you're going to start looking at and studying, one of the first things you need to do, really important, is to get a bit of context, to know what it is, why it's there, why it was written, and that will help you understand it a little bit. And that's the same for the letters to the Corinthians. So the context for these letters really flows out of the story of the book of Acts. So in Acts, you may remember that Jesus had commissioned his church by the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then when you read the story, what you see is for the first few chapters, they basically get stuck in Jerusalem. They're doing quite well. They're seeing the church grow. They're seeing new people come to faith, but they're not really doing the commission. They're not going to all these different places that they've been sent. But as the story goes on, that changes. And there are three reasons why it changes. Reason number one, persecution. They're getting a hard time in Jerusalem. Some of them are having to leave their homes and go to other places. They're getting chased away. And as they move to these other places, they're taking the gospel with them. They're starting new churches in those places. So the spread starts. That's reason number one. Reason number two is a particular church in a place called Antioch that had a different idea to anywhere else. And what they said is, we're going to bring this gospel to people who don't look like us. Up until that point, what they'd done is they'd reached the uh, Jewish community in whatever town they went to. But in Antioch, they said, why should this just be for the Jewish community? We're going to spread this to everyone. We're going to see a church for the Gentiles planted in Antioch. And so that was a real kind of breakthrough. And then they had a heart to send people out to other places and do similar. And then the third reason was a guy called Paul. So Paul got saved, and he really was the spearhead of mission into lots of different cities. And Corinth was one of the cities that Paul went to. We find in Acts chapter 18 the story of Paul in Corinth. I'm going to read it because it will just help us have in mind what the relationship is that we're reading about in the letters. So Acts 18 from verse 1 to 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. Every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed him and reviled him, in protest, he, he shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, well, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left the synagogue, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, an official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord, together with all his household, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers and were baptized. One night the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to harm you. For there are many in this city who are my people." He stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. They said, this man is persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of crime or serious villainy, I would be justified in accepting the complaint of you Jews. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I do not wish to be a judge of these matters. And he dismissed them from the tribunal. Then all of them seized Sosthenes, the official of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of these things. So we see a church planted. We see a promise from Jesus in a dream that there are many people in that city that he called his people, people who will be reached by the gospel. But also we see opposition. We see persecution happening in Corinth. And that meant that Paul had to leave earlier than he planned. So he'd only been with them about a year and a half. These were baby Christians, immature Christians, and they hadn't quite had the level of foundations building in their lives that Paul would have liked. So he has to leave, and now he's trying to help them and support them from a distance. He's trying to write letters. He's still trying to take care of them and help them navigate what it is to be a Christian in a place like Corinth. What they ended up basically setting up was something like a, a house church network. So as you read Corinthians, you'll talk about uh, the church in Chloe's house or the household of Stephanus. And these are talking about church gatherings that were in people's home. Now, the, the richer people in those days wouldn't have houses quite like we did. They'd have open courtyards and squares, maybe rooms about this size, so you could gather a decent number of people in, and, and they, they were all linked together. They could be called the church in Corinth. So in one sense, they were all together. In another sense, they had their each individual house church. And Paul was writing letters back and forth with them. Now... It's a bit different to something like Romans. In Romans, that was his introduction. So we heard about it last time, and he had a blank slate. He could just say what he wanted to say. It all flowed. It all made sense. 
With Corinthians, because it's part of a correspondence back and forth, what we have is half a conversation, not a whole conversation. So imagine you're on a train journey, you get one of the table seats, and then someone goes and sits opposite you, and they're on their phone. And they're having a fascinating, interesting conversation. And you're trying to like work out what it's all about, but you only get one side of the conversation. You can hear what they're saying, but you've got to try and work out, I wonder why they're saying that. I wonder what that person's just said to them. Uh, I don't know if it's just me that does this, but I'm, I'm sure some of you probably do it as well. Uh, but you just get half of a conversation there. And that's a little bit like what we see in Corinthians. But because of that, that shapes some of what's going on. So uh, I've put on your handout some features to look for. And one of them is you'll see things that are written in response to things that the Corinthians have said. Now, we don't know quite how the Corinthians have phrased it. We don't know quite what they've actually articulated. But for instance, in chapter 7, verse 1, it starts with, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So it makes sense that a lot of what comes after that will be a reply to questions or to um, problems that they've raised or whatever it may be. Another thing that we see is quotations. So there'll be times that in responding to something they've said, he might directly say the thing that they've said and then give his response to it. And we do this all the time. This is a standard thing in communication, particularly when you're emailing back and forth with someone. So as an example, I'm going to show you an email with one of our speakers from School of Theology and setting up the session. So this, um, uh, th this is a reply that Rebecca sent me before her session. And, and you can see she's written her email, but at various points, she's put things that I said to her. So would you like somewhere to stay the night before? She's quoted me in that and then given her response. Yes, please. She would like somewhere to stay and, and so on. So there are bits of it that are her speaking and there are bits of it that are me speaking. And that made total sense to me because I know what I wrote and it, it's a kind of normal way to do communication. If someone in 2,000 years' time found this and weren't quite as familiar, they might have to work out, okay, I, I think Tom probably wrote that bit, I think Rebecca probably wrote that bit, and that's how it works. Now, some of these are really easy to spot. Some are not quite as easy to spot. So, chapter 6, verse 12, is a really easy one to spot because you see quotation marks. Now, the problem is in Greek, they didn't have quotation marks. That's our translator saying, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are beneficial. They're saying, well, we think the Corinthians probably were arguing all things are lawful. And then Paul's saying, yeah, they might be, but they don't help, do they? They're not all beneficial. So you see there's an ebb and a flow. There's a Corinthian point, Paul's counterpoint. But some of them maybe are a bit more subtle. So uh, i put a couple where I think this is going on. Chapter 1, verse 18. When he's talking about the message of the cross being foolishness, he introduces the idea, but then he kind of responds to it. Yeah, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's actually the power of God. 
I wonder if that idea of the cross being foolishness was part of what they'd said. Like they were criticizing his preaching. Like they were saying, Paul, you've not come doing all the impressive stuff. You've just talked about the cross. That seems a bit foolish. That seems a bit weak to us. And he's replying to it. Uh, or in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, oh, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Quite apart from us, you've become kings. It's like he's paraphrasing and taking the flavor of their argument. And then says, oh, I wish you had become kings so that we could be kings with you. Does that make sense? There's like this kind of responsive element to a lot of what we see in this letter. Also, I think to get it, you need to understand how dripping with sarcasm it is. Paul is very sassy with them at times. And if you don't get that, if you don't get that he's taking digs and bringing things up with a little bit of edge, then you might miss it and read some stuff the wrong way. So i uh, put an example here. Um, he's talking about uh, marriage and uh, whether it's why to get married or to stay single and we'll come on to that when we get to the chapter but at the end he just puts and I think that I too have the spirit of God which seems like just a thing full of attitude to say to all these people who think they're very spiritual so that's a little bit of what we see and kind of expect to see as we read through it. I've also on your notes put a timeline of Paul and Corinth just to help see how things fit together. And the first thing I've put on there, which might seem irrelevant, but is really important to what's going on with Paul and this church, is something called the Council of Jerusalem. And this is uh, something we get a record of in Acts chapter 15. Basically, what has happened is as the gospel has gone to people who were not Jewish and they've responded, you had some other people kind of following them around saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. If you want to receive the blessings to the Jewish people, if you want to receive the Jewish Messiah, that's great, we'll welcome you in, but you need to be welcomed into the Jewish people. So you need to start keeping all the food laws, you need to keep all the holidays, uh, the males among you need to get circumcised, and that will be the, uh, the sign that you're in, and faith in Jesus alone isn't enough unless you do that stuff. That was the, the thing that was going around and they had a big meeting about it in Jerusalem different apostles and church leaders all weighed in and they ruled no no that's false that isn't how it is you're saved by faith so someone who's not Jewish their faith is just as valid as someone who is Jewish's faith that's how it works so they kind of squashed this idea but then they said at the end, but because we know some, some people are trying to reach the Jews, and it wouldn't be helpful if all these communities of faith are springing up, they're doing stuff that just hinders that mission. We will ask you to do a few things for the sake of, uh, for, for the, sake of the appearance and the mission. So keep from sexual immorality, keep from idolatry, keep from food that's been offered to idols. Just do this stuff because otherwise it'll make it harder for us to reach Jewish communities. They gave this kind of... Um, little concession at the end of it. But two years after this, Paul goes into Corinth, uh, and that's when he planted the church. We've read that story. And it's about a year after that that he wrote to them his first letter. Now, it gets complicated here because his first letter to the Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians, okay? His first letter to the Corinthians is gone. There's no historical record of it. We don't have it other than one mention of it in what we would call 1 Corinthians. He talks about the letter I wrote to you previously. So there's an unpreserved letter. 
They respond to him about 53 AD. And by 54 AD, we get his second letter to the Corinthians, which we call 1 Corinthians. You with me? Yeah. Um, then they respond to him. And then we get a third letter to the Corinthians, which we call 2 Corinthians. That's the timeline there. Now, some people reckon there was another one because he makes reference in uh, what we would call 2 Corinthians to a severe letter. And they're like, oh, there must be another one. Have you read 1 Corinthians? That's pretty severe, right? So that's probably the one that's actually uh, in, in reference there. Just talk about Corinth as a city as well to understand it. Corinth was a busy city. Uh, throughout its history, its population ranged from about 100,000 to 600,000 people. It's in modern-day Greece, and uh, it's helpful to look at this map, because you see that little land bridge there? It's right by that. So you've got this thin strip, about six miles of land that people could go over if they want to get from one bit of sea to the other bit of sea. Now this bottom bit here, you could go the long route in your boats all the way around there. It would take you ages and there was loads of piracy going on there. In fact, uh, there's a quote saying, let him who sails around Malia make his will first. It was just a, an area that you would not go. It was dangerous. So what people tended to do is take this shortcut over land. So they'd get their boats there and then they'd pull them. Yes? Six miles of land, six miles that way, or six miles? Six miles is the shortest path from sea, from one coast to the other coast on that little bit there. So, so from sea to sea. Yes, yes. So what they would typically do is go on foot over that six miles and they would drag their boats. So conscripted labor, maybe slave labor would be a big part in this, but they'd be taking their boats on land as a shortcut to cut off going around the dangerous bit at the bottom. Corinth was a city right on that pass where that would happen, which basically meant there was a whole ton of commerce there. People trying to trade with the east would often be going through and past Corinth, which made it quite a um, like in-demand city, made it quite a thriving commercial city. Um, also what happened in 44 BC is it was colonized and brought under Roman rule, so a lot of the the influence of the Roman Empire was there. And what the Romans started doing, because they needed land in Italy to give to people as a reward, is they'd start kicking out poorer workers from Italy. And they'd say, look, you lived in Italy, it was quite hard for you. you, you weren't free, but we need your land. So if you'll go and live somewhere else, you can be free. And so you got all these people moving out of places like Italy to come and live in Corinth and other places like that. Newly acquired freedom. So that means their kids then are born free. They're educated, first generation who've got the opportunities to start businesses and do creative things. So Corinth is starting to thrive as a young entrepreneurial startup city. It was cosmopolitan. People were drawn to it from all over. You got people from different nationalities, lots of different languages being spoken there. And there was a lot of wealth in the city, but it wasn't evenly spread. There were some very wealthy people, some very poor people in Corinth. 
Because it's kind of risen up in this way, there's no traditional aristocracy, lots of people are jostling to be at the top of the tree. And they'll have all different things that they would look to as the criteria for that. So whether it's about um, being the most educated or being the most rich or being the most religious and pious or uh, being the best at public speaking, or, they'd have all different things that they would trust in for status in Corinth. It's also really religiously pluralistic because people had moved there from all over the place. There were so many different religions there. Within 150 meters of the central market square in Corinth, you've got temples or statues to Dionysus, Artemis, Bacchus, Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, Zeus of the underworld, Zeus most high, and the Muses. That's just in the 150 meter radius. All of this is going on in the same place. Really creative place. Loads of media outlets, farms, gyms, holistic medicine, big sporting events, various art scene going on there. Lots of addiction. The, the nature of the city, the newfound freedom, means people can throw off bounds. They can experiment with different things. There were lots of substance abuse and alcoholism in Corinth. And a lot of that was tied into the worship of these different um, temples and shrines. Also very promiscuous, highly sexualized place. In fact, in the ancient world, to Corinthianize was a euphemism for certain sexual activity. So that's like the, the nature of Corinth as a place. Honestly, it reminds me a little bit of Manchester, uh, for good and for bad. Um, but I can identify with it. I love the letters to the Corinthians because they feel so raw and relevant. In his first letter to the Corinthians, We've got five big blocks of teaching. We've got a, a greeting and some introduction at the start. We've got personal business and greetings at the end. And then the five sections are about Christian unity and the cross is where he starts. Then he'll talk about the church and relationships for a while. The church in the culture. I gathered worship. And then Christ's resurrection and ours. The, uh, that's the plan for the morning. We'll go through each of these blocks. But let's start with the introduction. So if you have your Bible with you, it would help to turn to the beginning of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read the first nine verses out and have in mind as I do this question. What does Paul think of the Corinthian church? What's his view of them? And then, once I've read it, let's shout out some, some answers. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, what does he think of them? Any, anything? Yes? It's like when you listen to it, like if you didn't know what you just said, it sounded like a perfect, amazing church. Yeah. It reminds me of 2 Peter, mm. you know, being, that you've given everything you need for life and godliness. Yes. Like a full sense of trust and affirmation. Yes. Who you are in Christ. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so he, he's starting, not slamming them down. We'll see there's a lot going on, but that's not his starting point, is it? God's giving you everything you need. Perfect intro. Yeah, anything else we pick out? There were saints who owned Jesus as Lord. Yes. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really important, isn't it, to start there, called to be saints, not like, oh, you troublesome sinners, you love. He sees their identity as saints in Christ. Yeah, that's right. It must be a really profound thing that he had that dream that Jesus spoke to him and said, I have many people in this city. And then over the years, he sees one by one these people responding to the gospel, joining the church. They're the fulfillment to the dream that Jesus gave him. So they're so close to his heart. He cares about them deeply. He's not like the schoolmaster trying to um, kind of force them into, into line with no love for them. But they're, they're like his kids. He's a spiritual father to them. And he longs for them to do well. Let, let's talk about the first block. Um, the first block is... Oh, yeah, done that one. Yeah. Um, the first block is about the cross and Christian unity. And the problem, the presenting issue that he's trying to deal with is there's tribalism starting to gather around particular Christian leaders. So in verses 10 to 12, he, he explains what's going on. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. So it's like four teams have formed. You've got uh, Team Paul, uh, and maybe Team Paul. I like to think of these ones as the traditionalists, because Paul was there right at the start. So those who were, I was part of this church back in Paul's day. I remember how we used to do it. I've seen all the changes since then. I opposed every one of them, you know. Uh, they've got their way, and they want to stick with their way, the way they were taught by Paul. And then you've got Team Apollos. Now, Apollos was like the, the charismatic hot new thing who came into town. Flashy preaching, probably had like smoke machines and lights and put on a bit of a show. And so people were, were drawn away a little bit. Oh, Apollos is better than Paul. Now, if you ask Apollos and Paul, they'd be like, no, no, we might have different styles. We're about the same thing. But the believers didn't see it. So some of them were like, ditch Paul, ditch everything he taught us. We're all about Apollos' ways. 
And then you got Team Cephas or Team Peter. Now, Peter didn't really spend a lot of time there. He, he was in Jerusalem. So it's like appealing to the big dog at a distance. So this might be like, well, I don't need any of you local people. Like, yeah, I listen to Tim Keller on the internet. He's my pastor. He's, he's a long way away, but he's got more authority than any of you. I'm more holy than you. And then some, this is the trump card, isn't it? So, ah, oh, well, yeah, you, you, you might have your, your Peter or your Paul or your Paul. We're Team Jesus. And, and that sounds like it should be the right answer. But when you're saying it in that way, it's like, we're Team Jesus, so stuff Paul, stuff Apollos, stuff Peter. We don't need any of them because I go to my bedroom and I pray and I, I, I listen to my Bethel music and Jesus talks to me. So I don't need any of you. That's kind of the vibes going on there. And so you've got all these different teams and divisions and factions in the church. Now, the reason that they've done this and separated in this way is because they, they haven't understood a few pretty important things. So you'll see on your notes a table. If I find the right page. Yep, this page here, where it says misconception and Paul's response. So what I want you to do, next 10 minutes or so, on your table, look at the verses that I've given you and see what is it that Paul might be responding to. So where might the Corinthians have got it wrong and what does he suggest the answer is? And there's five of them to look up. So have a little go at that. Okay, let's draw this back and let's see what we came up with there then. So the first one, 1 Corinthians 1 15. What what's the misconception and the response going on in this bit? They are so is it? The, the argument about who they were being baptized right. into. So whoever was baptized into, yes. they were then going, well, that's, that's your following because that's who baptized yes. me. Yeah, so you're kind of tethered to the person who did the baptizing rather than the one who baptism actually symbolizes, right? So uh, it was all about the leader. It was all about uh, whose ministry you were kind of lined up under. Yeah. What about the next one? Um, chapter 1, verse 18. Cross is foolish. Yeah, the, the, the cross is foolish, and then the response to that is, is what? It's the power of God. It's the power of God, yeah. So it might look like foolishness, but God was doing something more powerful, more wise than any of you could see or imagine, uh, unless your eyes are opened by God to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about chapter 2, verse 1? Preaching Christ rather than the standards. Mm -hmm. Yes. His response was basically that he, what he was preaching was wisdom, but it was just of the old barren of the flesh. Yes. Yeah, absolutely that. Yeah. So he was um, trying to respond to this idea that. Good preaching has to be flashy. It has to have good rhetorical skill. And it's all about the form of words and human wisdom. It's like, no, no, the wisdom is in the message. It's in the message of the cross, which seems like foolishness, but uh, the power of God's at work here. What about chapter 3, verse 4? Again, it's the tribe of loyalty. 
Yes, the tribal loyalty. And uh, I think in this bit, like the wider section, there's a particular uh, idea that he's combating that somehow Paul and Apollos were set against each other, as though he'd come in and then Apollos should be seen as a rival. But he has these images of the fields, so planting and watering and God giving the growth, or the building with the foundations and building on it. He's trying to emphasize, look, actually what I did and what Apollos did, it's part of the same thing. It's part of God bringing maturity to you I love what Apollos has done. He loves what I've done. We are on the same page, and you're seeing us as set apart. And then verse 8 of chapter 4. We've got everything we need. Mm. Yes. So, You've got everything, you've become kings, you've become rich. It seems like it's this idea that the gospel will give you a high status. It will uh, make things well for you in this world. And he said, well, I mean, I wish that was so. I wish I got that as well. But actually, we're taking the lowest place. The path of Christ doesn't lead to like health, wealth, and success. But actually, it's following the crucified one on the path of the cross. Scattered through this section, he's in six different Old Testament quotations. They're all driving at the same point. I've noted them on the handout for you. But all of them are different ways of saying God's wisdom is superior to human wisdom. The other thing I've put on the handout, which I'm going to leave you to reflect on in your own time, but what can we learn from this section for the church today? I, I think some of the themes you might want to ponder are the relationship between leadership and power and what Paul has to talk about that and the way we do leadership. Um, perhaps there are lessons there. Maybe a simple focus on the cross versus the way we sometimes try to polish up and make the message attractive and appealing by different ways. Perhaps there's something to ponder on what success in ministry actually is, how we define that. Perhaps there's something to ponder on how deeply we rely on the Holy Spirit. All of these could be ways to think, but I'll let you have a ponder on that in your own time. Well, what we're going to do now is just jump onto the second block in the book, and we're going to start this. We'll do half of this block, then we'll have our coffee break, and then we'll pick up after the break for the other half. So on your handouts, it should be the church and relationships is what we're looking at now. And there are three different presenting issues going on in Corinth, and Paul speaks into each of them. The first one that we find at the beginning of chapter 5 is that there's a man who is having an affair with his father's wife. Now, that's phrased very delicately. Uh, I think by saying father's wife, it's not trying to suggest his mother. I think it's trying to suggest his stepmother. So his father would be remarried, whether he'd been widowed or divorced or something like that, has remarried. And then uh, this man's having an affair with his father's new wife. And the Corinthians are actually pretty pleased about this. They think this is great. This shows how much we've understood grace because something even as scandalous as this going on in the church means we must be nailing the grace thing. We've got it. And Paul's like, you really haven't got it. You've completely missed the point. They've missed the idea well, he uses the image of like, little yeast in the dough. If you let a little immorality just kind of enter into the church and just accept it and go along with it, that's going to start spreading, and your whole church is going to end up ungodly by letting this one go. And Christ died so that sin would be dealt with. You don't want to encourage and embrace sin in your midst. And... The solution that he gives them is, it's actually two things. And I think Christians, 
we get criticized about both of these things. And actually, we get it wrong on both of these things quite often. So the first one is holiness. He says, look, within your community, you should not have this. You should deal with this. You should speak to me. Even uh, talk about excommunicating him for a while. Having a high bar of holiness in the church is a really important thing. Often people will look on the church and think, you're just hypocrites. You just say this stuff. And But I, I look at what's going on, and there are so many examples of not living out what you believe. So there's holiness. But the second part of his answer is tolerance. And he talked to them about this before, it seems. So chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons. So that's the reference to this previous unpreserved letter. Um, but it seems like what they've done is they've taken that and thought, okay, well, all our non-Christian mates who are sleeping around, we, we, we best not hang out with them anymore. We best keep them at arm's length because we're distinct from that. And what he says is, you completely missed the point. I'm not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who's sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, reviler, drunkard or robber. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? So he said, when it comes to those who aren't the community of faith, don't get on your high horse. Don't get all judgmental, lecturing them how to live or disassociating with them. That's not the point at all. Tolerance is good. Within the community, holiness is good. Fight for holiness in the church. That's the first presenting issue. The second one we find in the first eight verses of chapter six, and this is believers taking one another to court. So there's obviously been some kind of minor disagreements between them. And we can't settle this, so I'm going to sue you. And this is bringing shame on the church, it's dragging them before the, the city courts. And what they've missed here is that the saints will judge the world. So in uh, Jesus returns eschatologically, the saints have a, place, a part to play in judging the world, judging the angels even, he says. So can't you figure out a solution to these little disputes between you on your own? So what he says they ought to do instead, they ought to resolve it in the church and if they can't do that, why not just take the loss? Why not let the other person have their own way and just accept it rather than doing something that brings shame on the name of Jesus? Just before we go into the third one, though, just a point on application of this. This sometimes, uh, I've heard this used in ways that I'm slightly uneasy about and just want to highlight. He's talking about civil cases and not criminal cases, and that's really important. So it's me and my friend have a little dispute and disagreement. It's not they commit a crime against me. Oh, let's not go to the police. That is not what he is saying here. And sometimes it gets really misapplied into abusive situations. It's not the point here. If it's criminal, you go to the authorities. If it's a disagreement between you and another believer, yeah, try and resolve it. That's what he's saying there. The third one, the third presenting issue, is the other part of chapter 6. And in this one, it's sexual immorality around the temple. So there'd be prostitutes around the temples of these different um, shrines or different uh, idols that they'd worship. And some of the Corinthians were getting involved with them. And basically, their argument went like this. They'd say things like, look, I'm under grace. 
so I can do what I want. All things are lawful for me, is the way they would phrase that. Um, they also had this line, well, food is meant for the stomach, and, stomach is meant, uh, and the stomach is meant for food. Basically, what they're saying is that we're created physically. We're created in these biological bodies. Our biological bodies have needs, and one of them is food, but you get the implication there are other needs as well. Isn't it just natural to go and fulfill those needs that I have? This is an early form of what later became Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was basically this uh, heresy around the second and third centuries that the physical wasn't important at all, that the spiritual was what mattered. And because we're really spiritual beings, our bodies aren't important. And so there were two forms it took. One form was this, because your body isn't important, you can do what you want with it. No consequences, no, no problem, just indulge anything. The other one was because your body's not important, you need to like kind of abstain from everything because it's all a waste of time. Two different versions. This was the version of, well, do what you want. The, the physical doesn't matter. The spiritual does matter. We're not going to do long on this, but just turn to the person next to you. Two minutes. Why is Gnosticism wrong? Go. Okay, let's just um, wrap up this bit and then have the break. What they've missed here is a couple of things. Firstly, in verses 9 and 10, he talks about how wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness and holiness. It's not a kingdom where sin and wrongdoing will be. So he says, do you not know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers. There's quite a list he gives there. He says, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So he said, that might have been your old life, but now Jesus has done something. You're not the same as you were, and there's a new life. So why go back to that? It's not who you are now. We'll come more on to how that change happens in our second bit on sanctification. The other thing that they've missed is that the body matters. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. God didn't just make us spiritually. He made us a body-soul union. And so what we do with our body has spiritual implications. So uh, these people who were with prostitutes, he said, well, you're united with Christ. Why are you trying to unite Christ with the temple prostitute? You're trying to do something that shouldn't be done there. So the solution is to honour God with your body. And what that looks like, and we'll, we'll look at more in chapter 7, how this works out in particular detail for different people. But the headline of what it looks like to honour God with your body is faithfulness in marriage and abstinence outside of marriage. That's basically the idea there. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We're going to break until quarter past 10, and then we'll come back and we'll do the other part of this second block, which is about marriage and singleness from chapter 7. Let's resume. So just to remind you, we're in our second block of 1 Corinthians. Our theme is the church and relationships. And we're going to go into chapter 7 now, which is in particular on the topic of marriage and singleness. And Paul's got some instructions for both groups of people. Now, this is the chapter that he introduces with that line concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they've got questions about this. And one of the things that they've said is it's well 
well for a man not to touch a woman. And referring to even in marriage, basically they're saying we want to be so um, kind of abstinence heavy that even in marriage there shouldn't be sexual relations. And he, he's addressing that a little bit here. This is the other side of the Gnosticism thing. You either go like everyone all the time or no one never, depending on which way you lean, if you've got this view of the physical not being important. So as you work through the chapter, he's got specific instructions for different groups of people. So starts in the first five verses by addressing those people who are married. And what he says is, no, no, you don't abstain. You're not to deprive each other, but you should see your bodies as belonging to one another and not your own. So there's no place for using or withholding sex in manipulative ways in marriage. Um, actually really radical to say something like this 2,000 years ago. It, the, the consensus would be the wife's body belongs to the husband. And he said, no, no, you don't see it like that. See it as belonging to each other. This is a mutual thing in marriage. Quite revolutionary teaching in the day. He goes on then from verse 6 to 9 to address, I don't know what your translation says here, particularly verse 8. It's, it's a strange word that he uses. It's not a normal word. My translation says to the unmarried and widows. I think unmarried probably is an unhelpful word there. The, the, the Greek one is agamois. And really, if you break the word down, it's demarried. That's literally what it would translate as. Later on, he has a different word for people who've never been married. I think what he has in mind here is, is people who once were married and now are no longer married. So he's mentioned widows, but also this would be people who've been divorced. And I think he's got something very particular in mind, which is people who come to faith in Jesus, and then because they've come to faith, their husband or wife says, I don't want a part of this, and they end the marriage in response to the faith of the individual. Which, this is getting slightly more speculative, but there are scholars, and I think they're right, probably, who believe that Paul himself was in this category. Growing up in Pharisee school, it would have been very, very, very unusual if he was unmarried and went through the Pharisaic training. But as he's writing, he clearly isn't married. So either that he's widowed or that uh, his marriage has ended, perhaps when he came to faith, seems likely to be his own situation. And what he says to people in this category is, look, staying single is a good thing to do. There are advantages here. Getting married, that's fine. If you want to do that, go ahead and get married. He doesn't have a strong prescription either way. He says it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And he talks about the idea of the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness, which if you want to play like misunderstood Bible verse bingo, that needs to be on your card, right? Because people are like, oh, the gift of singleness singleness, there's some superpower to live the single life, and the gift of marriage like, might be seen in the same way, like the superpower to live the married life. It's not that. What he's saying is, whatever your circumstances are, if you're married, see your marriage as a gift from God and use it well. If you're single, see your singleness as a gift from God and use that well. That's what he means by it. Uh, and we sometimes go a bit odd on it. Yeah, Mikael. Just to ask, is there somewhere, I'm sure it's not in the book of Corinthians, but I don't know where, <laughs> but I've read it somewhere. Paul says it's better to be single, mm -hmm. but if you, if you can't be single, it's better to be married. It's, it's yeah. yeah, this chapter, okay, 1 Corinthians 7, he says exactly that, yeah. Um, the, the next group he addresses um, 
are believers who are married to unbelievers. So uh, in 2 Corinthians, they say, look, you, you really don't... Yes? Sorry, I'll go back a bit. So yeah. the, the unmarried here are the demarried. Demarried, yes. So is Paul then saying that people who are demarried, whose mm -hmm. partners have left them yeah. because of the because they've come to faith, are they then free to marry? Yes. It, it seems like that's what he's saying, yeah. I mean, if, you, if we read the, the instructions to people in that category, right. if I'm right that that word means people in that, which I, I think the word, the etymology of the word, doesn't seem to lean to unmarried, it seems to lean to demarried. So I, I think he is saying that. Hmm. Because he said, if you want, we are free, right? Mm -hmm. There is no marriage anymore. They are not under a bondage. They have to be married. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, a little caveat on that is going to come in the next bit. So, verses 10 to 16, he's speaking to believers who are married to unbelievers. So, in 2 Corinthians, he'll say, like, look, you don't want to get yourself into this situation. You should marry someone of the faith. But let's say you are in this situation. Maybe you're already married, and you come to faith, and your partner doesn't come to faith. He's saying, keep the marriage. He's saying, don't divorce on that basis. So, you shouldn't initiate the, the end to that marriage and then perhaps go into another one. What he's saying is you should stick with it. But if they can't hack it, if they're like, I'm going to leave because of the faith, then so be it. That's what has happened. Um, in verse 17 to 24, this seems like a little bit of a random aside, a detour, but he talks about slaves and free and circumcised and uncircumcised. But he applies the same principles as he's talking about with marriage and singleness. And what he's saying is in all of it, our main goal shouldn't be to change our circumstances. So if we get opportunity and wish to, that's fine. But in general, what we should be looking to do is honour God in whatever circumstances we happen to find ourselves. Then from verse 25 to 35, this is the bit I think he's talking about unmarried rather than demarried people. So this is those who have never been married. But basically his advice is, pretty much the same. This is what Mikael was referring to earlier. There are pros and cons. You have a choice, and it's your choice to make. It's not sin, whichever you do. But he does discuss the urgency of the age, and he says uh, singleness is a thing that he would recommend. He'd advocate it as a, he'd say, a preferable thing. And then he slightly hedges a bit, and he's like, but I've not got this from the Lord. I, th th this is my view. This is my opinion. I don't have a command from Jesus on this. So he's kind of um, trying to be pastoral, trying to be helpful, but doing it in a way that he's hedged around it quite a lot. Um, I think through, through history, the church has swung madly on this in both directions. There was a time that singleness was so elevated and exalted as the only way to live the holy life, and monks and priests and nuns and all that were, were really prized singleness. And then it swings. And I wonder if today we've swung way the other way, as though like marriage is seen as like the be-all and end-all of Christian life. And it seems like marriage and singleness are both ways to honour God. And so we can honour God whichever we're in. Both are good. Both have things to bring. And then 
the, the last couple of bits, so engaged people, um, again, it's a similar story. You can, you can marry or you can refrain from marrying, pros and cons to both. And the same for widows. You can either remarry in the Lord, so that's with a believer, or you can remain uh, as you are. And he says that's probably preferable, but, um, but yeah, it's fine either way. And then that sassy, I think I have the spirit of God too at the end. Um, but that ends that section. Any questions on that bit? I know we've had a couple as we go. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's diving down a rabbit hole, but it's, it's the whole husband sanctified by the wife and the wife sanctified by the husband mm -hmm. um, if you're married to an unmarried, to an unbeliever. Mm. Uh, what, what's that look like? Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, uh, the God. verse in particular, we're talking verse you 16 or uh, 14. Yeah, yeah, for the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Um, yeah, and then I, I think where 16 fits into that is the wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Yeah, because in my translation, it's very much a, what yeah. wife was to when staying married that would lead to verse 12. Yes, yes. So I don't think it's saying there's an automatic salvation in there, but I think it is saying by bringing them into the space, God can work in that and you may see them saved. I think that's what he's getting at there. Yeah. Hmm. Right then, let's do block three. Block three is the church and culture. This section really is about the question of moral gray areas. So sometimes you have a moral decision to make and it's really clear cut. You know from the Bible, this thing is right and this thing is wrong. And so you've got a very obvious answer. A lot of the time, that's not the case. A lot of the time you've got something way more complex that you need to think through and work out. What's the best thing to do in this scenario? Let me give you an example, right? Someone once came to me and they were dating somebody. They weren't married. Um, they'd been together for quite a while and they said, what do you think about the idea of us going on holiday together this summer? Would that be right or would it be wrong? And I thought about it. I don't feel it in good conscience. I can tell you it would be wrong to do that because where's my Bible verse? Where, what, what is saying in scripture that's wrong? I'd be calling something sin that God doesn't call sin. On the other hand, I didn't want to say to them, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it. Because there were lots of like alarm bells ringing in me. You know, I'm really not sure about this. So it's one of those situations where really the best answer is, should we grab a coffee and chat about this? And let, let's talk. Let me ask you some questions. Let me uh, throw a few things at you to help you think about this. And then, uh, and then you, you ask things like, okay, so what's the plan? Like, wh what are you doing regarding hotel rooms? Have you got two rooms? Are you trying to have twin beds in a room? Are you trying to show a bed? Like, what, what are you trying to do here? What's your way of, if temptation comes, how are you going to mitigate it? Well, there's all sorts of questions, right? What are you struggling with now in your relationship with each other? So there's a lot that you want to work through with someone. Other examples you might come up with, um, someone once asked me, like, 
I've been invited to a Halloween party. I, I know that Halloween celebrates stuff that's dark and occult. I'm a Christian. Is it okay to go? Is it, should I not go? Again, you don't want to give a clear... It's absolutely fine. What if that person's struggling in that area? And you don't want to give her, well, you definitely can't do that because the Bible doesn't say it. That, this is what I'm getting at with moral gray areas. There, there are lots of them. The more mature we become in faith, the more of these we have to work out how to navigate. In Corinth, the big issue was, is it okay to eat meat that has been part of a sacrifice to an idol? That was the presenting issue for them. Maybe that parallels, is it okay to eat halal meat? It might be an equivalent thing today. Now, what makes it complicated was that Council of Jerusalem that I mentioned earlier. So they all got together. They all said, no, no, if you're a Gentile and you become a Christian, you don't need to follow the Jewish law. But they did say at the end, and this is Acts 15, verses 19 to 21. Therefore, I've reached a decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever's been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him. For he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. So basically, there's a small list of things that they said, look, it'd be better if the Gentile Christians didn't do this stuff. It's not a salvation issue, but it just helps with the mission to the Jews. So they've heard this. And so in Corinth, they've got this instruction. You really shouldn't eat meat that's been offered to idols. Now, in Jerusalem, that sounds fine. In Jerusalem, there wasn't much meat that was offered to idols. It's like, in theory, this sounds like a really good thing. In Corinth, it's not quite as straightforward as that. So you remember I shared that market square and within the 150 meters, all these different shrines, all these different temples, well, each of them had their own feast day. And what would happen on those feast days is people would come and they'd bring their offering to that shrine and their offering would be a sheep or um, maybe a goat or, or some animal. They'd bring it, they'd give it to the priests as the sacrifice. And that was basically what funded those pagan priests for the year. So if you're given 300 sheep on one day of the year, what are you going to do? Well, you're probably not going to keep them because the meat will rot. You don't have a freezer. Maybe you could salt some of the meat. But the more sensible thing would be You'd sell them. You'd sell the meat and then you'd have money. And then on other days, you'd buy meat that's been given to a different one down the road. And that's the way the market worked. That's where you would typically get meat from. Feast day happens, loads of meat floods the markets, the prices go down. So if you're hosting a community group barbecue and you want some good meat, you go to the market and where's it all come from? Well, it's been offered to idols. So it's hard to do life in Corinth and follow this instruction, not to eat meat that's been offered to idols. It's a bit of a grey area. Uh, and so Kenneth Bailey says in the context of a city like Corinth, uh, all of this made sense. So they're like, look, we'll just eat it. It's fine. There's no big deal here. But if we put it in Jerusalem, such a practice would sound like a trashing of the Jerusalem agreement. If word gets in Jerusalem, oh, those Corinthian Christians, they're eating meat that's been offered to idols, they'd all kick off in Jerusalem and come down and cause trouble. Right, here's a question I just want you to think about. We'll, we'll get into the specifics of meat offered to idols later. Sh should any of this matter? 
should what life was like in Corinth make any difference to the theology and the outworking of that for the Christians there? Why don't you turn on your tables and spend three or four minutes discussing? Should it matter in the slightest? A sense of the opinion of the room, who would vaguely, if you had to skew one way or the other, and I get that there's nuance and stuff, but if you were skewing one way or the other, who would skew to that shouldn't matter? The, the culture shouldn't make any difference to the theology. Okay. I think it shouldn't, but there's in fact an element to which it does complicate whether or not. So maybe some things are not wrong, but generally mm -hmm. should be avoided, but there's what are, you, what are you presenting mm -hmm. and showing about Christianity? Yeah. It's always an issue as well. It is, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And I feel that if I have a strong view on something, mm -hmm. it's up to God and the Holy Spirit to put my view right for me, mm -hmm. not for me to put my view on other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. That, that's the answer, dealing in that. Mm -hmm. I know it's about what other people think, but that doesn't interest me. It's what God thinks. Okay, good. Who would say, if you're veering one way or the other, it does matter, the culture that we're in should change how we do and outwork our theology? Okay. There's a few. I'm noticing the number of hands that didn't go up for either are very, very high. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, this, I think, is one of the biggest questions for how we do theology, and it's one we very, very rarely ask. Let's just track where this goes, right? So you might be following Church of England General Synod at the moment. <laughs> Interesting question, isn't it? Does the way of the world we live in, the culture that we're in, change how we do theology? Does it change how we live it out? Does it change what we say is acceptable and unacceptable? Well, that's what they're wrestling with. That's what they're trying to think through. Let's say you go down the route of culture means that we change some form of our theology or expression of it. Where, where will that take you? It will take you to a church that is not distinct from the culture, that beats the same drum that the culture is beating. You may have heard um, Patriarch Kirill from the Russian Orthodox Church come out a lot of times in support of the Russian war in Ukraine uh, and actually said that soldiers who go there and fight and die will have all their sins forgiven, right? What's he doing? He's bending the theology in order to fit the culture. Ah, he's, he's making church fit with prevailing norms. What happens if you go the other way? What happens if you say, no, no, culture doesn't make any difference. We do what we do no matter what. Well, you get... 
um, missionary colonialism, let's say. So this is the form of church, and we're going to go all over the world, and we are going to make it exactly as it was in the culture that it started in. We've seen a version of this when... Um, Missionaries went to Africa in the 19th century and taught people, no, no, to worship you have to wear a suit in cultures where nobody would wear a suit. Now, that sounds ridiculous. It's not a theological point, but there are versions of it that, that are the whole form of everything gets transposed into every place it goes. This is uh, what happened in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. The Mass would only be said in Latin because that's the form. That's what we do. And yeah, you might speak a different language. Yeah, you might have different words. We wear these robes. We speak this language. We have these practices. And so you have a very rigid, inflexible thing that doesn't look like the cultures that it's in. Both are dangerous. Both are problematic for theology. <clears throat> Can there be a Christianity that looks different in Corinth to what Christianity looks like in Jerusalem? Can there be a Christianity in Manchester that looks different to what Christianity looks like in Istanbul? It depends on the um, culture shouldn't inform the practice, um, but the, print, the, the principle. So the church them, it, it's, itself is insular. Obviously, it, it sort of preaches out wide, but it's, it's not concerned with the culture around. It's not there to change the culture around it as, as such, um, but just focus inwardly. And then obviously, if more members join, then that's what that might change the, the, the sort of culture overall. But to just the, to go to just to go along with the culture it, it, itself isn't good. Like in the area of Orthodox churches, um, they have a distinct way about them because they're ingrained in the culture of the Orthodox Church, Ethiopian, Coptic, and so on and so forth. But the principles say that the same and they apply. So it's it's more the principles that are applied, but obviously they're applied in the context of the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keep a pin on the principle point. I think that's where we want to get to. That's the kind of headline here. Um, just another provocative question. If we are going to say yes to there can be a different Christianity in Corinth as there can in Jerusalem, think about this one. Can there be a different Christianity in 2023 than there was in 1980? Yeah, right. It's interesting, though, to think where these things lead and what we mean by yes and no. I think the answer has to be it depends quite what you mean by it. That has to be where we land. Because thinking outright yes or an outright no, both have dangerous elements to them. I yeah. want to say a Christian expression, not Christianity. Okay. Because Christianity yeah. is Christianity. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's the expression that's important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've got a quote in my head. I can't quote it all, yeah. but it talks about. This guy talks about a creative minority. Mm -hmm. So you're not one extreme where yes. you're withdrawn and isolated, yeah. and you're not the other extreme where you're too yes. involved. Yeah. In yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, um, so we were talking about the idea of Christian, Christians as a creative minority, so not too far involved and not too far removed is what we're saying. I like the idea of bend but not break. I think that's a, a good way to think about it. So the principles that are true, in expressing them in a culture, there's an element of bend to make it work in the culture, 
but never to the point where it breaks the principle, where the actual principle is no longer being upheld. And I think that's what we will see as we look at it. Paul gives us five different principles or questions that we could ask in a moral gray area, and these will help us work out the right or wrong of the situation. The first one we're calling the principle of freedom. So what's actually going on here? Is this a freedom question, or is it one where, where we have a clear right and wrong? Is it a gray area in the first place? And so with the meat offered to idols, it seems like what the Corinthians were saying well, was, well, we know theology. We understand these things aren't real. There's no like actual power to them. So it won't do any harm, will it, eating this meat? That was their argument. And in some sense, they're right. Paul wants to affirm, yes, we know that they're not actual things. We know that uh, eating the meat isn't going to like poison or corrupt your body. We get that. So he's affirming the freedom of the issue. The second one, though, he calls the principle of conscience. This is verse 7. He said, it's not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So this is a sense inside of, actually, if I do this, I'm going against God. Think about your Halloween party. You might be able to argue till the cows come home about how all, all those things don't have power and how all you're doing is dressing up in fancy dress and going and spending some time with your friends. And yet, if it doesn't sit right inside you, then that's your conscience telling you, yeah, I'm not sure about this. R.C. Sproul said, if we do something that we think is sin, even if we're misinformed, we're guilty of sin. I think that's really interesting. Because like, the thing itself might not be sin, but if in your heart you're like, I think this dishonors God, and I'm going to do it anyway, then your heart says, well, it's fine, I've dishonored God. And so that's sin. The third thing, though, and this comes back to, to what you pointed out earlier, the principle of love. So the principle of love here with the meat offered to idols is think about what this will do to other people. So you might know that these idols are not real. You might go and eat the meat, and then someone who's a new Christian is watching you. So, oh, okay, yeah, Christian, Christianity and idols, that's fine. They can mesh together. I've seen my leaders at the, at the idol feast. We can do both. I'll get involved too. But for them, they don't have the same knowledge. They've not thought it through to the same extent, and so they're led astray. So it'd be better to just go without than to do that. Think about my friends who wanted to go on holiday together. Maybe they had a very clear plan of how they were going to do the holiday. They were going to be in different rooms, even different hotels. They've got a whole thing and they're meeting up and they're spending time. And, and it's all well planned out. They're talking to people. They're accountable. They're not doing anything wrong. And then the photos of it go on their Instagram. And another couple in the church are like, oh, yeah, these guys are heavily involved. They went on holiday together. It's obviously fine. There's no issue. We'll go on holiday together and they get led astray. So think about the effect it will have on other people, not just on yourself. The fourth one, this is jumping into chapter 10 now, is the principle of trajectory. Will this then lead to other stuff? Are you starting a journey that you know is a journey of compromise that will lead you into other compromises? 
And he uses the Israelites as an example to this. And then the final one, we call it the principle of mission. So how will this play out with non-Christians? So if every time you go to the markets, you have to like ask for a full like history of the meat. That's awkward, right? If you get invited to your friend, let's say you get invited to your Muslim neighbor's house for dinner. If you start saying to them, look, can you explain where this meat's come from? Like what, what has it been sacrificed to? You just cause a riff. So just eat what you buy, ask no questions. Eat what's served to you, ask no questions. But if they start making a big deal of it, if they say, right, do you want this meat? It's been offered to Dionysus in this ritual. At that point, because it's a big deal to them, at that point, said, actually, no, I can't go along with it then. That's the point to make the stand. You don't need to be the one pushing at it, but if it becomes a presented thing to you. I think a really good example of this, and just go with me on this, right, is yoga, right? I don't know if you've ever heard Christians, like, railing against yoga because of, like, spiritual origins of some kind of deep, dark, distant past. I think this principle applies really well. If you go to a yoga class and you've got an instructor in there teaching you different stretching exercises and you're just going through it as kind of breathing and body stretching and just relaxing your mind, great, just go along with it. You don't need to ask questions about where did this come from and what are the origins. But if in the middle of the class they say, right, we're going to do this spiritual thing now where we're invoking the spirit of whatever, at that point it's like, hang on, hang on, right, I'm going to opt out from here because that would say something very different than just going along with a class. I think that's the principle he's trying to get at here. And in chapter 9, he just ex he uses himself as an example of some of these principles when it comes to should he be paid for his ministry. We're not going to uh, go into that in much detail. Any questions on this stuff? That's a really good stuff. I have a question. Yeah. So in, in the middle here, yeah. it says that the um, Jerusalem report might have not been a good idea as, as practical in Corinth. Yeah. Why is that? Um, because there was much more meat that was offered to idols kind of in the fabric of Corinthian life than in the fabric of Jerusalem life. So in Jerusalem, you'd have to go out of your way to get meat offered to idols. In Corinth, if you wanted any meat, it would have been offered to an idol. So it presents different questions around how to do that. I'll refer to the important stuff, so like the um, uh, council. Okay, no, no, well, uh, the reference there was to the kind of caveat at the end of it, of don't eat the meat. Um, yeah. Okay, we are gonna do something fun now. Um, when I come at theology, I always like the tricky passages. I always like the passages that when we read them, we want to ignore because it's the word of God and we want to understand it. And so we're going to do what I think is the most challenging passage in all of 1 Corinthians. And when I say we, I mean you, okay? And this is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the passage for you. And then on your tables, I've got two things I want you to discuss. What problems do you see in this passage? Now, let's try it all different kinds. So it might be a problem of, yeah, I really don't like what that says. That's fine. Put that as one of them. But don't leave it as that being the only one. Try and think of as many different angles on, on it and different things that you see as issues there as you can. And then have a think about them and have a think what might actually be going on in this passage. 
Okay, so if you want to follow along, feel free. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the husband is the head of the wife, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It's one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's degrading to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Ten minutes, have fun with that. <laughs> people found with this passage and I don't think you're reading it properly if you didn't find problems with this passage <laughs> what did we come up with yeah Okay, so let's put hierarchies as one thing then that we picked out. We'll come on to the, um, the second half of it in a minute, but let's, let's make a list of all the problems that we, we see. Any, anything else? It could be about worship. Sorry? It could be about worship could be a worship and head coverings, and that's problematic because we don't want to wear head coverings or not wear them as we worship. Is that because of the issue of how women are looked upon? Okay, so worship and how we're looked upon. Okay. <laughs> so, so thinking that might be like a, a cultural expression in that day. Is that what we're? So it could be that if the women didn't wear. Yeah. That they were seen as being um, a loose moral. Yeah, okay. So this is thinking about what might be going on and kind of how we make sense of it. Yeah. And it's very strange coming from Paul because we know Jews always wear a kipper when they pray. 
Right, okay, so uh, strange from Paul because of head covering, yeah. Good. It could be about distance between women and men. If men were not meant to have long hair, okay. women were, and women yeah. suddenly started. Yeah. To not cover their heads so they were being like mad. Yeah. So that's kind of a. So, so we're on the. Um, what might be going on? Let's just kind of rewind a bit and try and get all the problems on the table first and then reconstruct what we make of it. It sounds like there are fewer problems emerging than I thought there would be. <laughs> Go on, give, give us some problems then. I don't like this. Don't like it, yeah. I find it really hard. Um, right, because it would seem an offensive thing to say. Like, you need to cover your head if you're going to pray, right? And yeah. I don't understand, so I can get around all the cultural issues, but it's a big part of the angels. Angels, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. What have they got to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is the Women are a reflection of men. Women are the image and glory of men. Anyone else like offended by this? We should be seeing problems, right? Yeah. Well, nature shows us that men shouldn't have long hair and women should. Yeah. Nature shows. Yeah. Right. Anyone find it contradictory, just self-contained goes? It's the question the question in the passages whether it's relating to husband and wife. Okay. Uh, yep. Yep, that's one because um, the Greek words for husband and man were the same and woman and wife were the same. So husband and wife or man woman. Find anything that contradicted itself in the passage? Yeah. What? what, what? The, the man from woman and woman from man bit. And yeah. Then, um, it's almost like he's saying that. Bit. You know, when you said earlier something about how he sort of hedged his bets, it's almost right. like he's saying something. Yeah. And then he sort of hedges. He's saying the opposite, isn't he? He's confused. He doesn't. He doesn't know whether or not man comes from woman. Because <laughs> in one bit he says man doesn't, and then he's like, but every man's come from a woman. He's confused. He doesn't, he doesn't know. No, it seems well, that it's confused. It seems that it's kind of laid out the traditions of the day. Yeah. And then from 12 on, yeah. um, or not from whatever it is, um, yeah. is, is then, is then uh, sorting out. Right. So that might be the what's going on piece. Yeah. Um, other things that might contradict, so again, along those lines. Should a woman veil her head or is her hair a covering for her? Well, in the latter bit, it seems to suggest that she's given her long hair to cover her head. And then in the first bit, it's like, no, no, she needs to wear a veil to cover it. It doesn't make sense. Which bit do you apply? Which bit do you ignore? She can't do both of those. Do you think his theology of Genesis is wrong? I do. I do, because uh, when he says that man is the image of God and woman is the image of man, I read Genesis, and he made them in his image, male and female, he created them. So I think it is wrong, the theology of Genesis here. Um, and I'm, I'm bold enough to say that. Right. Let, let's talk about... Oh, God. Well, is, well, is it not saying so if he says that um, man is the image of God and woman is the reflection of man, so that means that both of them are there? Well, it seems like it's a derivative. But he's saying it in kind of a hierarchical structure. Right, okay. But the, but the results are the same. But it doesn't seem like in Genesis here, 
I don't think the result is the same. Um, I, I think the result is very different to say you're directly the image of God versus you're the image of God mediated through somebody else. It's a very different thing to say. Now, in both, you might say, yes, image of God lands, but the way you get there, I think, is quite significant. Um, it's good to get the problems on the table, right? And it's good to see that the problems are more than just, I don't want to do what it says. Now, it's fine if that's a problem, but if that's the only problem, then there's something of, well, we want to obey God's word, right? There's more than that going on here. I think there are three things you can do with this passage. One, pass one option is you say, this is something that Paul's saying as a universal for all of the church and for all the time. We need to all do this. So next time one of my friends is drumming in the band and he prays out loud and he's wearing his cap, we need to slap him down and rebuke him because he's, he's covered his head and he's trying to pray to God. And then the worship leader prays out, but she's not got her head veiled. We need to slap her down. She's not obeying it. Like, you could go down that route if you think that's what it is. Just hold, hold fire one sec. The second thing you could do is you could say, mm, this isn't a universal thing. This is a thing he's saying to believers in Corinth because of cultural concerns there. Maybe it's the way people tend to dress, the, image, the impression you want to give. I think that's problematic as well. And the reason I think that's problematic, even though I think people who, uh, who go there tend to do so with good motives, but it doesn't make sense of what it says. He's not referring to how life is in Corinth. He's referring to creation. He's referring to how God made things in the beginning. Therefore, it doesn't seem to make sense as a cultural argument because he's making it as a creation argument. This is where what I started with. Do you remember that email I showed you from Rebecca where there's a bit of back and forth? I think to understand this passage well, you need to understand that Corinthians is conversational. And when you see a breakdown of a passage that contradicts itself directly, that really helps us. The key word there, verse 11, nevertheless. Nevertheless is the word, right, you've heard that. I'm going to tell you something different. I'm going to set that straight. This is how it is. That's a hinge from the passage. Verse 4 to 10 seems to be making an argument. Starts with some practice. This is what we say people should do. Then it backs it up with some theology. Then we get the word nevertheless. Then we get some verses that correct the theology. So nevertheless, and the Lord woman isn't independent of man. Man isn't independent of woman. So you see in the, the first bit, it was kind of arguing there was independence. And just as woman comes from man, well, man comes through woman. It's correcting the wrong theology of the first bit. And then from the correct theology, then goes into some practice and say, this is how it should be. That's how I understand the passage. I think it makes sense of what's going on. Also on the long hair point, right? And this is just brilliant when you spot this. If you read in Acts 18, just after Paul had left Corinth, so this is immediately following on from the bit I read. Acts 18, 18, after staying there for a considerable time, Paul said farewell to the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. At Kentray, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. So he leaves Corinth, and he finally has his hair cut. He's been under a vow all the time he's been there. He's been there 18 months. He'd have had long hair, right? I think this is another bit of Paul's beautiful sarcasm. When oh, doesn't nature itself tell you that a man with long hair, isn't that a disgrace? I wonder if they'd been giving him stick about his hair when he was there and he's turning it back on them. But I'm getting into speculation now. Yeah. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think he's been playful and banterous and they would have got it. Um, I would probably stick in a WhatsApp group with a mate of mine who has long hair. I might take some digs at him. They were taking digs at Paul. There's kind of just friendship and it's not trying to make a um, proclamation about it. But I think understanding it this way, what we see some of the takeaways of this passage are that men and women are both created in God's image, that maleness and femaleness are both God's design, that men and women both need one another, that men and women can both serve one another, that gathered worship should involve people participating, praying, prophesying, and that men and women both have a part to play in our gathered worship, and we should try and make it easy, not hard, for people to do that. I think that's some of the takeaways when we get this right. Let's jump on to the next page in your handout. We're talking about gathered worship. Two issues on gathered worship in Corinth that we're presenting. One was about communion and one was about spiritual gifts. So with communion, what was happening is they'd gather together. They'd do communion as a meal around the table in an evening. They'd have some bread, they'd have some wine. The rich people who didn't have to go and work would get there early. They'd start eating the bread. They'd start drinking the wine. By the time the poorer people had finished work, all the bread and wine had gone. The rich people were sitting around, full stomachs, a bit tipsy, and it all gone, and the, the others had nothing. That's an abuse of what communion should be. The solution to that is see yourself as the body of Christ and treat one another in that way. The second issue around spiritual gifts, they were getting a bit competitive with them. They were trying to see who had the best ones and honoring some people, dishonoring other people. The solution, see the church as the body of Christ, treat every part of the body with honor. And then the kind of summary of it all, the key to how you live as the body of Christ is love. And we see that in chapter 13. Let me read the chapter. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Chapter 14, he, he goes deep into two particular gifts. He talks about prophecy and about tongues. Prophecy 
is a human report of a divine revelation. It's God's given you a word, a picture, you bring it for someone else. And the idea is to speak to others for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. That's what verse 3 says. Those who prophesy will build up the church. And we're told we should pursue this gift, strive for it, eagerly desire it, something we should want to do. Later in the chapter, he tells us how to use it. He says, like, in your meetings, you can all prophesy, but really just two or three of you at a time. And um, then the other should weigh what is said. The other should try and ascertain, is this from God? What shall we do with it? The other one he goes into is the gift of tongues. Tongues, it just literally means languages. It's giving uh, an articulation of praise to God using a different language that you haven't learned. Maybe a different human language, supernaturally given, or maybe a heavenly language given to you. His attitude to this one seems a bit more ambivalent than prophecy. Um, in fact, I think in verses 2 to 4, we get a bit more of this conversation back and forth where he's discussing it with them. And he says we shouldn't forbid it. He says it's a good thing, and yet there is a problem, which is it can tend to alienate people who don't understand what's going on. So the right way to use it, there are two right ways to use the gift of tongues. One is privately. So as you're in your own prayer time with God, it's a great way to express your heart that you don't have the words for, to pray privately. Or secondly, do it in public, but then God would give someone else an interpretation and would be able to explain what you've prayed. If that doesn't happen, then no one else should pray in tongues. It'll just make it a confusing, weird meeting for people. So I'm just going to move us on to the last block. I know um, time is getting away from us a little bit, but that's, that's okay. We're going to do Christ's resurrection. I think this is an important thing to spend some time on. Chapter 15. What we have in the first bit of chapter 15 is Paul's summary of Christ rising from the dead and appearing to different people. I think this is a brilliant passage because I think in these verses we address pretty much every um, objection that's put forward to the resurrection. I'm going to give you 10 minutes in your tables, read through that passage, and then I've noted down five different objections to the resurrection, five different alternative theories, you could say. How do these verses speak into each of those? And I've given a little hint where to look. Take a few minutes on that. Okay, I'm not sure if you've had time to get through all of them or not, but just to, to bring this bit around, uh, I think some of the key things to look for here, when it comes to the swoon theory, he only passed out. Well, it asserts quite clearly that he died. and He, he died at the hands of Roman executioners. Like, they were pretty good at killing people. They knew what they were doing. When we're talking about spiritual resurrection only, I think the burial is important because it's drawing attention to the body. And when you talk about the resurrection, watch the body is an important thing, right? There's a body in a tomb. If you want to disprove the resurrection, it's easy. Look, there's a dead body, unless it's not there. And if it's not there, you need an explanation of how it's not there. And if you say, oh, it just spiritually rose, that doesn't make sense of why the body is gone. You could say that the body was stolen by someone, perhaps stolen by um, grave robbers or, or someone kind of uh, like that. But that doesn't explain then how he could start appearing to someone alive. So that theory itself doesn't quite work. Sorry? 
Well, exactly, exactly. If someone had it, unless it was someone who had no interest, but then it still doesn't explain how he's appearing alive. So, okay, maybe those appearances weren't real. Maybe they were hallucinating. You might be emotional after someone you cared about died. Well, that doesn't explain the body, but also to appear to 500 people at the same time, that's not how hallucinations work. It's an individual experience. It's not a shared community thing. So then your last resort is, well, maybe they were lying. Maybe they were all on board, except Paul was one of the biggest ones who wanted to disprove the resurrection. And then he saw Christ alive. Why would he join in the light? It doesn't make any sense. So there are, even in these few verses, there are things that speak to a lot of the different alternative theories put forward. Now, having established that Jesus has raised from the dead, Paul then ties that to our future resurrection. Verses 12 and 13 are key. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And basically what I say is, look, if we're not going to be raised again on the last day, then that severs the link with Christ and everything's a waste of time. Gospel preaching, waste of time. Your faith, it's a waste of time. You're still in your sins. You're not forgiven. You don't have any hope for the future. And he explains it as like first fruits in a harvest. So the first fruits were Jesus then to come will be all of us. Another way of thinking of it is representative headship. So we were in Adam, what he did applied to us all. Now we're in Christ, what's happened to him will happen to us all. A good way to think about this is, uh, you remember Brexit, right? We had our Brexit negotiator who'd go to the table, but whatever he hammered out in that deal, that's what we would all get. It wasn't an individual deal for each of us. Well, he was like a representative of the nation, right? Well, Christ is a representative of all who are in him, as he conquered death and brought us to resurrection. So that's what we all get. We all will share in that. And there's an inevitable victory coming. And that's what motivated Paul for his pioneer mission. That's how he could suffer, because he knew that this world isn't all that there is. There's something better coming. If it wasn't true, if there was no resurrection, then hedonism would be the answer, wouldn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there's more than that, it changes everything. And then in the last bit of this chapter, he teaches on the resurrection body. Just a few highlights on that. The resurrection to come will not be disembodied. It won't be sitting on a cloud spiritually with a harp. It'll be physical. It'll be earthy. Tom Wright says, some of you have an idea in your head of life after death. What the Bible teaches is, is more like life after life after death. And that's a good way of thinking about it. So it'll be a new earth as well as a new heaven. Things like exercise, nature, sport, exploration, discovery, stewardship, all that we've been made for in this world, just without the sin and the fall that corrupts it. There'll be continuity with our current being, but also discontinuity. And we see that in the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes they didn't recognize him. They're like, oh, it is him, which might seem a bit scary. It's like, will I really be me? And then I think, well, this has already started happening in my spirit. I'm still me, but God's transforming me into glory. And then what was of this world perishable will become imperishable. What was in dishonor and sin and shame will be made glorious. All the weakness of this body will be transformed into power. And then 
chapter 16. It's kind of a standard Paul outro to one of his letters. It talks about his financial offering for the poor, his intention to come and see them, and then a few greetings and final encouragements. That's 1 Corinthians. We're not going to do a lot on 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was written about 18 months after 1 Corinthians. Big breakdown in relationship. And you've had some other people come in who were false teachers. They, they call themselves super apostles. And this wasn't like when Apollos had come in and was basically preaching the same message and Paul wanted to endorse him. These people were trying to distort the gospel. And much of 2 Corinthians is spent opposing them, denouncing them, and defending his own ministry. The Corinthians are really annoyed at Paul, and you would be after some of the stuff he said to them in 1 Corinthians. And he's trying to repair the relationship a bit. And also he's got a couple of chapters in there focusing on his offering to the poor. I've got an exercise, we're not going to do it. This is one for you to do at home, which was always the idea. But it's reflecting on what Christian leadership and Christian ministry is from Paul, from the super apostles. Whole load of verses, and then thinking about what are some of the applications today for celebrity Christian culture. I think 2 Corinthians is brilliant at speaking into that. But the plan for now, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back at 11.40, so 15 minutes, and then we're going to do about 45 minutes on sanctification.